0: We've given up on church, but not on God. If you'd like to learn more about our locations in Huntersville, Davidson, and Denver, North Carolina, you can check us out online at LakeForce.org. Thanks. Well, I wanted to start this morning with a question. When was the last time? When was the last time you were uh, cap- captivated by wonder? When was the last time you were caught up in a sense of wonder? You think about it? That kind of moment where, where some, you know, this kind of awe and this surprise and this, just this element of wonder just kind of filled you. You remember last time? I was thinking about some moments of wonder throughout my life. I remember one uh, during a Christmas in middle school. Uh, in middle school, my uh, buddy John Huff invited me over to his parents' house for their big christmas party and this was sort of uh an adult party and i was john's friend to keep him out of trouble during the adult party and so i had to wear a suit and a tie and look all adultish and i was not excited about this party at all that was until john led me into the dining room and i saw something i had never seen in my life before a chocolate fountain (laughs) have you seen one of these before this was, an, I mean, this was remarkable. And it was bigger than this one. I could not find a photo of the one as big as the one I saw. I just stood there in total wonder. I was just in awe of this chocolate fountain. In fact, I wondered if I should have brought my bathing suit so I could just jump into the chocolate fountain and splash and swim. It was, I, it was incredible, just chocolate flowing. and Wonder uh, it filled my heart. Now, now, my sense of wonder did not last very long because I then asked John's mother, how it is that they make chocolate into a fountain like that. And she said, oh, it's very easy. It's one part chocolate and one part canola oil. <laughs> My sense of wonder was dashed after that. I'm sorry if I've ruined chocolate fountains for you going forward. But you know that feeling of being filled with wonder. Wonder leads us to a kind of awe. It, wonder can lead us to a kind of worship. We're talking this Christmas season about worship. And what it means to come and worship God. We have the, uh, we've titled this series Wonder because wonder, if we will let it, if we will allow it, will always lead us to worship. And worship is what Christmas is all about. Did you know that? Now, Christmas is a word that is filled with meaning for many of us. In fact, when we think of Christmas, we often think of family, or or we think of food, or or maybe credit card bills. Uh, We think about holiday lights and color and cheer, all kinds of things. Uh, There's so much about this word that means so much to so many of us. But worship, worship is a different kind of word. Think for a moment about the word worship. What does that word mean to you? For many of us, worship may have to do with Music or singing songs like we just done or raising hands or clapping. For some of you, worship may just mean attending a church service or a religious service. You go to worship. You came to worship this weekend. Uh, For some of you, worship is a break in an otherwise hectic weekend schedule. You come to worship and you drop your kids off at church while you go with your spouse to Dunkin' Donuts on a Sunday morning date. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Don't do that. So what is worship? What is worship? If that's what we're talking about this series, what is worship? Well, worship is simply this. Here's the definition I want to work with today. Worship is a response. Worship is a response. It is responding to God for who he is and for what he has done. It is a response, in other words, based on who you think God is and what you think God has done for you. That's going to define how you worship. And because worship is simply responding to God, you can actually worship anywhere. Did you know this? You can worship in your car. You can worship at the park. You can worship in the living room. You can worship anywhere you are because everywhere you can respond to God. Which begs the question, who do you see God to be? And what do you think God has done for you? When we think about Christmas, we think about a lot of stories that teach us Something about worship. And today we're looking at one of those stories. Dean read it for us. It's often referred to as the three kings or the wise men or the story of the Magi. It's got a lot of titles. It comes from Matthew's gospel. And it begins like this. Let me just reread those first two lines. It goes like this. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. Worship is responding to who God is and what he has done. So, today, I want to look at three responses to the birth of Jesus that we see in this story. Three responses. The first two are going to miss it. These are like swings and a miss. But just before we strike out, we're going to get a third bat, and we're going to see... The response to the Christ child that has the power, not just to change our lives, but to change the world, and it might change the very way we think about Christmas. Woo, that's a squeaky stage. I better not back up there. Let's, Let's move forward a little bit. Here we go. Now, before we get into this, I need to dispel some myths about this story, because there's a lot of misunderstandings about this Three Kings story. First of all, did you know this? They weren't kings. They weren't kings. The Bible calls them magi. We'll get into that in a minute. Secondly, I know we're treading on thin ice here. There weren't three of them. The Bible says there were magi. In fact, there were probably a lot more than three. And you might say, well, Aaron, they brought three gifts. Well, yes, but just because I get my wife three gifts for her birthday does not mean there are three of me, right? But the real kicker is this. The real kicker is this, and some of y'all are gonna get up and walk out on this ready. Right? When the Magi actually came to Mary and Joseph, did you notice? Mary and Joseph are no longer in the stable. They're no longer in the barn. You know where they are? They're in a house. Now, before you go home and decide to smash or throw out your nativity set, let me tell you why it's okay to have three wise men at home for nativity. Uh, I actually want to dig into this. Some really fascinating stuff that, honestly, I did not know everything I'm going to share with you today. I learned a lot in preparing for this message. Uh, In fact, a lot of these facts uh, become a vital part of this story. Understanding the historical nature of these characters deepens the meaning and impact of the story. A lot of people think the wise men are just a myth. That this was a story made up, but there's some real historical evidence that just blows my mind. Let me jump into some of this. First, magi. Who were these guys? Well, as we said, the Bible calls them magi. That's a Greek word that means kind of exactly what you would think. What does magi sound like? Magic, right? These were astrologers. These were priests. These were prophets. These were magicians in ancient Persia, in Babylon. We actually have historical records of this stuff. In Babylon, in ancient Persia, there was a priestly class called the magi they were the astrologers they were also the intellectual elite did you know that you could be an astrologer and intellectual elite in persia they studied the stars they predicted future events they interpreted dreams these were some really important guys in their town and they actually were considered a class unto themselves an elite group in the ancient world now uh we're told that they make a journey in response to a star. And I don't have this in the notes, but I was thinking about this this morning. I just have to sneak this in because I think this is so fascinating. Uh, you know, we actually have some historical records about stars in the ancient world. In fact, uh, Julius Caesar, have you all heard that name before? Julius Caesar? The day Julius Caesar died, there was a supernova in the sky that night. We, we can correlate these two dates. And well, that actually did a lot for the astrology business. Let me just say that helped those astrologers out a lot in their business for a number of years. But we also know that around the time of the birth of Jesus, there was something that astrologers call a conjunction. Uh, uh, Not the, what, conjunction, junction, what's your function? Okay, all the 40-year-olds, man, we grew up on that. Not that kind of conjunction, another kind of conjunction. This is when two planets align because of their orbits. They align in the sky, and it intensifies, even magnifies, the brightness that they reflect in the night sky. Did you know that? And we know that the year Jesus was born, there were three such conjunctions in the sky. One on May 29th, one on October 3rd, and one on December 4th. Does that blow your mind a little bit? That's kind of crazy to me. So whether this star was a natural phenomenon that God used, or whether it was a miraculous star of some sort that he used, in some way or another, we know that these guys saw the star and they knew that it had some meaning. So they head out on what would have been roughly an 800-mile journey from Babylon to Jerusalem. I brought a map for you so you kind of know where Babylon is. That's in modern-day Iraq. And you see Babylon on the right. It's a little bit small font. And then you see kind of that arcing road to Jerusalem. That is the ancient road that people would have traveled from Babylon to Jerusalem. Why not go a straight line? Because nobody wanted to cross the Arabian Desert. So that's the pathway that you'd go from Babylon. Now, here's the thing. We know that they traveled somewhere upwards of six, maybe 800 miles. And you thought you had to drive a long way for Christmas. Uh, Here's the really cool part. I'd I'd not noticed this before. It's actually the very same route that nearly 2,000 years earlier a guy named Abraham would take on his journey from his town to the promised land. Pretty crazy Okay, it keeps going. Watch this. So 2,000 years, God leads Abraham. Now fast forward 600 years from that. A guy named Moses is down in Egypt. That's south there of Jerusalem. Southwest, actually. Moses leads God's people back up to Israel. And on that way, they encounter a prophet who's riding a donkey who actually talks. It's a little bit of a crazy story. You'll have to read your Bible to learn more about that. But the prophet's name is Balaam. And Balaam says this to Moses. He says this about God's people. A star will come out of Jacob. And a scepter will rise out of Israel. Now, what's that? Star, that's king talk. Okay. Remember, stars were associated with rulers, just like Julius Caesar. A scepter, that's a staff that a king used to rule. The prophet is giving a prophecy, a promise, about a coming king and Messiah that will rise up out of Israel. Now, there are prophecies like this all throughout the Old Testament, and many other Jewish scriptures attest to this. But how did the Magi find out about such prophecies when they're way over in Babylon and God's people are in Jerusalem? I'm glad you asked. It's a very important event that happens 600 years even later called the Babylonian Exile. Short version of that, a guy named Nebuchadnezzar comes. He sacks Jerusalem. He takes all of the bright people and deports them back to Babylon Along that same route. Guys like Daniel. Remember Daniel? Uh, How about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? You ever heard some of those stories? Guys, all of that happens in Babylon. And here's what's interesting. Daniel becomes known as the greatest prophet in Babylon, even though he himself is an Israelite. Daniel is the one who interprets King Nebuchadnezzar's dreams. Daniel is the one who predicts what's coming. And so Daniel earns an authority and even, we believe, membership into the class of the Magi. Are you tracking with me? Now watch this. 600 years after Daniel, is it possible? I've got to think it is. That these Magi are still rehearsing and reciting the prophecies and promises they learned. From Daniel. You see, it's quite historically plausible that these guys knew a king was coming out of Israel, and they were waiting and waiting and waiting for the sign. And then one day, conjunction, junction was I don't know how it happened, whatever it is. Oh, they see they said that's it. This is the moment. And they pack up their whole caravans and they set off on an eight hundred mile journey that would totally change their lives. And that brings us to the first of our three responses. First of our three responses. You ready? So first pitch, fastball. We're going to swing and miss on this one. The first response is the response of resistance. Resistance. So the Magi follow this star. It leads them west. And when they get to the town, what do they do? Well, they go to where you would have gone if you were looking for a king. Where would you go? You would go to the king's palace, right? So they go to Jerusalem, and they show up on Herod's doorstep. And this is where the story picks up. They ask, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now, look what happens next with Herod. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. Now, this is one of those times where the Bible language is kind of like subtle and modest when it really should be like almost like one of those words you're not allowed to say at grandma's house. He was ticked, he was furious. And then Matthew gives us another detail. And all of Jerusalem with him. Now, why would all of Jerusalem be upset if Herod's upset? Well, I don't know if you've ever known anybody quite like this, but do you have anyone in your life where if they aren't happy, no one else is happy? Do you know that kind of person? All right. If they're sitting next to you, please don't elbow them right now. But you know that kind of person. They're not happy. No one's, It's like me with no coffee in the morning. You just do not want to talk to me, right? If I'm not happy, if I don't have coffee, nobody's happy. And that's the picture we get of Herod here. Herod is the kind of guy that if he isn't happy, no one's happy, and he's going to let you know. In fact, Herod was actually a pretty terrible guy. Uh, he worked for the Romans. He was a Roman employee, a governor, even though he himself was Jewish. Uh, he was known as King of the Jews. And he clung to his power with relentless force. In fact, we know from other historical documents outside of the Bible that Herod actually had 12 wives. He only really loved one of them. But when he thought that the one he loved was after his power, you know what he did? He had her killed. That's what Herod did when he didn't like you. So he killed his wife that he loved. Then uh, her two sons, his two sons, when they started to get a little squeaky, he had them killed as well. And then the barber, I do not know how we know this. We have historical records. The barber protested said, you shouldn't kill your sons, Herod. So what did he do to the barber? Well, he killed the barber, right? So, so just moral lesson, don't be friends with Herod. That's the big point here. Don't be friends with Herod. See, Herod was so... Tightly he was so afraid of losing his power. In fact, he was so afraid that at his own funeral there would be no mourning. You know what he did? He arrested 70 prominent people, 70 prominent Israelites, had them kept in prison under orders that the day Herod died, they were to be executed so that there would be weeping and mourning in the city. That's the kind of guy Herod was. So look at how Herod responds. The Magi. He summons the chief priests, teachers of the law, to find out where this child was to be born. Then, look with me at verse 7, it says this, Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. See, Herod pretended worship, but he intended murder. Herod's response to the Christ child was one of resistance. Herod was raised Jewish. He knew the promises of a coming Messiah, a coming king, but he could not imagine a world in which he was not the center, where everything was not about him. He could not worship the newborn king because he was consumed with his own worship. And so instead of receiving the Christ child, Herod resisted and set out to have the child killed. Here's what Matthew wants us to see in this first scene, in this first response. Matthew wants us to see this very carefully. Right at the beginning of the Christmas story, Matthew says, it is possible to resist the work of God in your life. Did you know that? In fact, a mentor of mine when I was younger, the man who led me to Jesus, used to put it this way. He said, Aaron, the Holy Spirit is a gentleman. He will never enter uninvited. It's possible for you to resist. It's possible for you to miss the work of God in your life because you are resisting it. And this story is important because it reminds us of something, not touchy-feely, but something very important about Christmas. Namely this, that Christmas is not simply about a cute baby or some fluffy animals or a barn on the front of a Hallmark card. Jesus, my friends, did not come to be cute. He came to be king. And he wants to be king and Lord of our lives as well. And so as we pause here in this first response, I just want to invite you to reflect. Is there an area in your life where you might be resisting the work of God? Where this Christmas, an area of your life where God wants to be king, entrusted and placed with that authority, but you're resistant. That's the first response we see. Response number one, resistance. Response number two that we see in this story is quite different. And I did not know quite what word to put to it, but I chose the word indifference. It might be apathy. It might be that word that I love to text, meh. How do you spell meh? Is it M-E-H? Is that right? Meh. You you know that word. So you can't, meh. Like, are the Panthers going to win today? Meh. You know, it's just kind of like I don't, I don't know. I can't even take. uh, Anyway, you get the idea. The second response is indifferent. Uh, Where am I? Here we go. It's hard to believe, but one of the responses of the of the Christ child, one of excuse me, one of the responses to the Christ child in this story is that of indifference. And again, I had not seen this before. This blew my mind. Look with me at the passage again. When he, that's Herod, when Herod had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. That's the quote from Micah. Now, do you see what's going on here? Herod has gathered all of the priests. Not some all. He has gathered all of the Bible experts. He's like, listen, guys. These magi have shown up. They came yesterday. Uh, They've been following this star for 800 miles. They say the Messiah has been born. But you guys are the experts. You are the guys who studied this your entire lives. Where exactly is the Messiah to be born? And these guys don't bat an eyelash. They're like, oh yeah, no duh. It's It's in Bethlehem. Don't you know that? And then they quote the verse from the prophet Micah. Now here's what I don't want you to miss. Notice what happens next. Nothing. Nothing happens. It's not like Bethlehem is all the way to Gastonia or something. It's six miles from Jerusalem. It's like a a day hike in in that area. right? It's it's right down the road. And they're like, Herod, uh, we were binge-watching some old Saved by the Bells episodes. Can we go back to our rooms? They can't be bothered. They're like, "Eh, Messiah's come, meh. Meh. I'd never seen. this was the moment. Do you see this? The biggest event in all of the Holy Scriptures was happening right in front of them, and they missed it. They had heard the story since they were kids. They had spent their whole lives studying these verses, but when it is actually happening, they do nothing. And it got me thinking this week about the hazards of of familiarity. The hazards of familiarity, especially when it comes to Christmas. You know, one of the interesting things about children, especially at Christmas time, is their capacity for wonder. They they never get tired of the familiar. Have you noticed this? There's that one book that your son or daughter will have you read over and over and over and over again, right? Good night moon, good night red balloon, good night lights and the I right? I was just it's been 10 years. I still know that story. Anyway, here we go. The hazards of familiarity. Uh, Well, one of those people for me in my life, that's what I was going to tell you a story. One of the people in my life was my Uncle Brandt. I grew up with Uncle Brandt. And Uncle Brandt was the cool uncle who always did the cool uncle tricks. You know the cool uncle tricks? You You know the one about the detachable thumb? Do you know this one? Have you all seen that before? It's pretty magical, isn't it? A cool Uncle Tricks. So uh, whenever I'd see Brant, I mean, I was just, I was mesmerized. I this cool Uncle Trick, this detachable thumb. Every time I'd see him, I'd say, oh, do the detachable thumb. I even knew the secret, but I still wanted to see Uncle Brant do the detachable thumb. It's just something about children and their sense of wonder. But then we grow up and we lose our taste for the familiar or we lose our capacity for wonder. And I think this is what happens for many of us when it comes to Christmas. The songs, the stories, the incredible realization that in Jesus, God has come to earth, Emmanuel, to be with us. We've heard it all before. We can sing the songs without actually engaging our brains. And so somehow this just becomes another Christmas, just another thing to get through so we can go back to our Saved by the Bells binge-watching. But it doesn't have to be that way because our God is a God Who loves to bake a fresh batch of mercy for you every morning. Did you know that? In fact, the author G. K. Chesterton says it this way. Uh, I just love this quote uh, where he says, God is much more like a child. Then we think, listen to his words. He says, because children have abounding vitality because they are in spirit, fierce and free. Therefore, they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again. And the grown up person does it again until he is nearly dead. For grown up people are not as are not strong enough to exult in monotony. But perhaps God is strong enough to exult in monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, Do it again to the sun, and every evening, Do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but has never got tired of making them. It may be that He has the eternal appetite of infancy, for we have sinned and grown old, and our Father is younger than we. Isn't that powerful? We have sinned and grown old. Now listen, Chesterton is not saying that it's a sin to get older. That's good news because we are all now 30 minutes older than when we walked in here. What he is saying, he says, Don't let your heart become calloused or closed off to what God wants to do in your life today. What if God wants to show up in your life this Christmas in a new way? In a fresh way. What if every day this week God wants to meet you right in the mundane monotony of your everyday life? What if every day this week when you wake up your knees were to hit the floor before your feet hit the floor and you simply prayed God do it again? How would your life be different? First response we see in this story is that of resistance. The second response Meh. Meh. Third response is this. Listen to the power of Matthew's words. Third response is the magi. They respond how? In worship. Where is the one born king so that we can worship them? Here's how Matthew describes it. After they had heard... The king, that's Herod, they went on their way and the star, holy cow, the star's back on the scene. And the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. I love the King James version of this word. It's actually two words in the Greek. It's rejoiced exceedingly. Rejoiced to the point of overflowing. Overflowing. And it actually comes from the very same word "caris" that we get the word grace. They overgraced when they saw this child. On coming to the house, they saw the child and his mother and they bowed down, literally fell to the floor and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. It's interesting here, Matthew makes a point of telling us about these three gifts gold frankincense and there is no shortage of ink spilled on what the symbolic meaning of these three gifts are and everybody has their own opinion so i'm not going to tell you anything and then next year i can preach a sermon on it and you'll forget that i um, didn't tell you anything here's the thing these are gifts that were fitting for a king these are intensely valuable objects why does matthew tell about us tell about these Because these were the Magi's treasures. They guarded them on the journey. They had quite literally treasured them. Stored them in a chest. Kept them locked up and safe. But now, seeing this child, realizing what God had done, they offer the most valuable things they had in their possessions. If they could have, they would have offered him their very lives. I was reading a story this week about a man named William Porter. William uh, was an author. He had a very rough life, an alcoholic father. His mother died when he was young. Uh, Mr. Porter eventually married, uh, lost a son, later lost his wife to an illness. Uh, he, He got into some financial and legal trouble. When his company went under, he was arrested for embezzlement and was spending seven years in prison. During that time, he discovered a gift for writing, and he wrote a lot. But I think wisely, realizing that people would not likely buy stories from someone in jail, uh, he decided to publish them under a pen name, the name O. Henry. Anyone ever here read O. Henry? One of O. Henry's famous stories is something that we read as a family every year. It's called The Gift of the Magi. The story is rather simple it's about a young couple. They're very poor, they have almost nothing in their possessions. They're named Jim and Della. The only thing Jim has of value in this world is an old gold watch. It was his grandfather's. Uh, he, he, doesn't, uh, it, he doesn't look at it much because he actually uh, doesn't have anything to hold the watch except this old leather strap. He couldn't afford a chain. Uh, the other thing he loves is his wife. She has beautiful long hair, and he wants so badly to give her a wonderful Christmas He wants to give her these really expensive hair accessories with jewels. In that day, they called them combs. But he's got no money, and he gets this idea. You know what? I could sell that gold watch, and I love it, but it would be worth it just to see my bride's eyes light up and to see her put these in her hair. And so he does. And he's so excited on Christmas morning. And he goes to to give them to Della, and he sees to his shock that she will not be able to wear them because she has cut off her hair and sold it to a wig maker in order to buy a platinum chain for the watch he no longer owns. Wonderful story. Dramatic, amazing twist, which I've now told to you so you don't have to read it. I've ruined it. Merry Christmas. (laughs) I love how O. Henry ends this story. Listen to these words. And here... I have lamely related to you the uneventful chronicle of two foolish children in a flat who most unwisely sacrificed for each other the greatest treasures of their house. But in a last word to the wise of these days, let it be said that of all who give gifts, these two were the wisest. Of all who give and receive gifts, such as they are wisest, everywhere they are wisest, they are the magi. You see, what o. Henry's story illustrates, what the story of Christmas illustrates, is that this is what love does. Love gives. It gives what is most valuable to the one it loves. And this is what God has done for us in the Christ child. God gave the one and only thing that only God could give. God gave his only son. John puts it this way in his gospel. He says, for God so loved the world that he gave. And in the end, I think this might be what the story of the Magi is all about. It's not really about them, is it? The story of the Magi is a story of two very different kinds of kings. One king who thought that everyone else's life should be sacrificed for his glory, for him to be worshipped, for him to be honored. But the other king, the humble king, the Christ-born king, would set aside his own glory and lay down his own life so that we might live. And my friends, when we realize that, when we see what kind of God He is and what He has done for us, the only appropriate response in this life is worship. When we see the good God that He is and when we realize what He has done for us, the only appropriate response is to give Him the most valuable thing that we have, our trust, our affection, our adoration, our loyalty, our devotion, our worship, our very lives. So the question for us this Christmas to reflect on is how will we, how will you respond to the coming of Christ the King in your life in Christmas 2017? Let's pray. Father, I just want to pause to reflect myself and for us as a church to reflect again on the kind of good Father you are. One that does not hold back but gives to us the thing that was most valuable to you. Your one and only Son. And Jesus, when we realize what you have done for us, not in demanding that we worship you, not in demanding that we bow to you, but in dying for us and inviting us to trust you and follow you in love. God, the only appropriate response I can think is to fall on my knees in adoration of you. And so, Father, I pray that this Christmas you would allow us to see again who you are and to see what you have done for us. And you might plant and grow in us a sense of wonder that would lead to worship, that would transform our lives, our families' lives, and the world around us. Would you come and make that true in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.